0: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintzenmayer. My guest for episode 111 is Marty Wilson Piper, best known for his work for 30 years starting in 1980 with The Church, the Australian band known for its very cool dual guitar approach. You're right now listening to Spark, a song that Marty wrote and sang from The Church's most famous album Starfish from 1988. Now, Marty is not actually himself Australian. Since his departure from the church, he has run many simultaneous projects. We're going to be talking about a song called The Moon Drips from the album Afterlife 2019 by a project called Nocturum with Dare Mason and also his wife, Olivia Wilson-Piper, who is present for this interview. You'll hear her chime in now and again. We're also going to hear an even more recent thing, Dancing with Death from the After Death EP, which he'll tell the story of its a tune left over from the Afterlife Sessions, also by Nocturum. Then we're going to look way back to a song called You Whisper from his second solo album, Art Attack, also from 1988, and conclude by listening to Forget the Radio from his 2000 solo album, Hanging Out in Heaven. To learn more, check out Marty Wilson, that's Wilson with two L's, Piper.com. To learn more about this podcast, check out NakedlyExaminedMusic.com, and if you'd like to support what we're doing here, please go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. Let's get going. The moon drips. We want to get right to the present. Forget about the mass of church material the fans want to hear about. No! Until prepping for this, I didn't even know Nocturum existed, so this was a, a wonderful surprise that you'd been doing this very, you know, adventuresome, I want to say, Not ego-driven, you know, the fact that it's a band name. Say a little about how this project came together. I know this is the fourth release by this and where you're at with this album briefly before we play the song in full, and then we'll talk about it in some detail.
1: I have a childhood friend, Dare Mason. We can't actually quite remember when we met, but we think it was 55 years ago when I started getting into playing guitar. He started getting into playing, and we formed a band together in Liverpool in the 70s. One thing led to another. He moved to London, I moved to London. We played down there together for a time in a little band that we had. He got interested in engineering, and I got interested in being a guitarist in a group. And he went off and learned his skill as an engineer, producer, and I went off and learned to be a, a guitarist, songwriter, singer. And throughout the years, we sort of brought those two skills together and started making records.
0: All right, and then where are you at by the Afterlife album? They're all kind of eclectic, but this one in particular and the song, folks would not expect a Spanish cowboy song out of you, so (laughs) say a little about this. I mean, expect the unexpected,
1: isn't that the phrase? I always wonder about how the Beatles were allowed to make the White album and people never said, which style are they trying to be? I wish they were a bit more focused Because all this um, experimental stuff mixed with all these kind of occasional country songs and occasional psychedelic songs and occasional rock songs. I mean, who are they? What are they trying to do? These days, it seems because it's the subcultures of split genres, are you know, country music guys can't get psychedelic. Indie guys can't get lightweight. Heavy metal guys can't be kind in their lyrics. Why does everybody have to be one thing or another? And I always felt that the Beatles were a a prime example of making music, not making genres, not catering for a subculture that only liked one direction. And I don't mean the band.
0: So I read, I guess on your website, that this song was originally just a full-length run-through of you playing. So I thought I could pick out which parts were you by, you're the guitars, and Dare was the synths. But no, you're playing guitar synth, the guitar organ part, right?
1: That sound, there's a pedal you can buy that sounds like an organ.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: You can do a lot with pedals these days, although I do prefer to use amps. I play most of the guitars and bass on Nocturum albums, and very very little of keyboards the occasional plink plonk and dare does some of the guitars and bass he he sings a couple of the vocals i sing most of the vocals and if we got some tricky keyboardy piano part we get somebody in or if it's something you know pads and something reasonably simple dare will do it as far as drums i occasionally might play drums on a track on any project that we do together very occasionally but generally in the nocturum records we've got drummers in proper drummers.
0: So what was surprising about this was that that organ part apparently came first, that it was that and Dare playing the bass and Olivia playing violin. The basic track was a jam of those three instruments, right? So the actual arpeggiated guitar was an overdub as opposed to that being the foundation of the song.
1: Well, that's often the way, you know, I mean, you've got to start with a foundation and it's not always a riff that comes first, It's not always an arpeggio that comes first. You can get an idea just by strumming an A minor, a D and a G, you know, and then everything else gets added to it. And then in the end, somebody says, hey, why don't we try this? And that try this ends up being the feature of the song. But it's inspired by the the mood of the original idea.
0: Well, I like that. I have a feeling this would not have happened if this had originated with the guitar part, that in parts of the songs, it's is it nylon string doing the arpeggio, and then you pass it back to electric, then it goes back to nylon, and it kind of changes a very subtle tonal shift throughout the song.
1: It's the same with A Girl With No Love on the album. There's a kind of a main riff on it. You know, it's got that main guitar riff on there.
0: That has become the main part of the song. That was an afterthought. Actually, what sounds like the main riff of this song to me is actually the drum part. Is that very brushed, tom-intensive, but obviously that came slightly later in the process. I mean, was this from the beginning jam? Was this have sort of the western flair to it, or was that something that, during the arrangement process and the filling out, crystallized?
1: Well, the drums were put on later, yeah, because we probably originally played it to a loop. Sometimes we play to just a basic machine sound, a basic rhythm. Other times Dare might have some kind of loop in the computer, which we sort of manipulate to something that we want as a basis for us to jam along to. And sometimes I pick up the bass and sometimes he picks up the guitar and we just jam along, you know, and sort of until somebody comes up with something and goes, oh, that sounds like a good little thing that happens there between us. I mean, that's how it always works. That's how it's always worked for me when I'm collaborating. There's no special trick here or, or system, which is unusual. When I was in the X band, the church, you know, that's how we made records. We'd go into a rehearsal room. The first couple of albums, the singer had, had a four-track tape recorder, and he did lots of demos on there, and we learned those songs. And then as the band went on, we started to realize that we could jam well together and we had a creative relationship. And the songs came out of the jams you know we'd get in a room somebody would hit an a minor or a g or a d or a b and somebody would start playing a guitar part and the bass would come in and then we'd sort of all look at each other and go hmm that's really good why don't we do that again and now we need another part that's how it always works when you're in collaboration
0: so just to clarify with this so the actual drum loop that you would have been playing to already had the no 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 wait 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 slow
1: down I'm not I'm not saying it didn't I'm saying it's irrelevant Because it may not, I don't even remember (laughs) what the original rhythm was. It could have been something with that. It could have been something that went boom, chat, boom, boom, chat. It it all sort of disappears into hazy history once the actual song itself has been created. And once you've actually realized what you have, you go, aha, this is what we have. This is what this piece of music should do. This is where we should go with it. Songs develop. Rhythms develop, bass parts change, lead solos are one thing or another. The chord sequences could be different. The harmony vocal changes the feeling of the melody in the chorus. Everything changes. You might have an original idea, which you might sort of stick to, but you're changing everything every time. You're developing, evolving throughout the songwriting process.
0: But from a technical standpoint, so it's a different thing to say, we have this jammed piece, and it's five minutes long, and now we're going to keep layering over it. We're going to move things. We're going to shift things around, but it always stays about the same length. I mean, I guess with things digital, like it's a lot different than it was when you were writing as a four piece in 1992. Cause otherwise you have to start, you know, literally, you know, okay, we've got ideas out, but now we're going to start a new track, play it over again using some of the same ideas as opposed to keeping that foundation that you developed in the first place just physically on the tape because there's so much
1: flexibility in computer programs these days, it can be any of those things. Sure.
0: You can just chop off a minute and yeah.
1: You can do anything. You can write anything. You can create anything. You can do it in any order. You can start with something that goes boom, chat, boom, chat, boom, chat, and turn it into boom, chat, boom, chat. It can be about the universe or the color of your carpet it can be in any key. It can be sung by me or by Dare. The lyrics can be written by me, or it can be an instrumental. It can have the main guitar is a Fender Stratocaster through a Vox amp, or it can be an acoustic guitar. And we might do both, and erase one and keep the other. This is the whole thing about creativity. There are no rules.
0: So, just uh, and I will push a little. <laughs> you can just say I don't remember. This is fine. But in terms of the evolution, too, we have to get a trumpeter in here, it sounds like it was inspired by what was going on with Olivia's original violin jam.
1: I'm not sure if Olivia came on the track first or the trumpeter did. No, I did You did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Olivia was on the track first, and then we got a trumpeter in because we realized that the sound of the track was asking for that. It might have been at a very, very advanced stage of the recording. We might have heard early on, that we thought, You know, this is sort of going, can you imagine a trumpet on this? And everybody in the room goes, yeah, that's a great idea. So that's what we did. But we might not have.
0: <laughs> was there something in particular, you know, did you listen to Sergio Leone or some of these old Westerns like, that you were kind of conscious of, once you realized this is sort of what you were doing, that you were consciously were trying to pull more of that in? Or was that just really all intuitive?
1: You get perspective on what a song needs and what a song does and what's happening to it and how to capture wherever it is that it's going you just get a feel for it you get a feel for everything it's like you get a feel for writing it you get a feel for what the bass part should be you get a feel for which guitar you should use and you get a feel for we need a trumpet on this and uh, you just get a feel for it because it becomes obvious, in some cases, what a song should do. And you know what? In the end, you might even get there because nobody agrees. You might get there because everybody agrees. It's all just somebody's brain coming up with
0: an idea. That's it. That's how it works. That's how you write songs. Let me just ask you a couple more specifics. Like, I can see once this Spanish-Western thing started coming to mind, then like that sort of calls up more. But there are a couple elements that clash with that. So I really liked this. In the second verse, you introduce this synth part that's kind of a vibe sound. This little light vibes thing, which that's not really in the palette of old Western with trumpet and stuff, but it totally fits. We didn't write an old Western with trumpet.
1: We wrote our own version. You've got to remember, in songwriting, we're all unique. We can all be in tribute bands and try and do Dave Gilmore guitar solos and Depeche Mode covers bands. But ultimately, as individuals, when we create our own music, we are unique beings. Consequently, our uniqueness blended with our unavoidable influences and our experience makes us create something that's not going to be like anybody else but us. Sure, bands do sound like each other, but a lot of bands don't, like a lot of songs don't. It's amazing when you think about songs and how many songs have been written. It's amazing how many formulas there are, even using the same chords and same atmospheres, perhaps, and they all sound different to each other, and that's because of the uniqueness of the individual.
0: When we get to the very short chorus here, Really, the vocal rhythm is what I was kind of wondering about because you've got this "I reach you," but it's for the most part slightly before the beat. But then by the last one, you kind of it's caught up, so the "u" is really pretty much on top of it. It's always interesting when you, when you have a section where those words are so spaced out like that, that, like, that you're singing chords rather than... Well, that's a lot of backing
1: vocals in there as well at the same time, of course, on that track. But, you know, it's like, as the lead singer, you can sort of sing around what's happening in the beat. If you're really trying to, I taste you, like, to really sock it. Maybe that's how Robert Plant would sing it, but maybe that's not how Barbara Streisand would sing it. And maybe that's how, you know, uh, Dave Garne would sing it, but not James Hetfield. Because everybody is right. Every choice they make is their own based on their own situation. Plus the random element, because not everything you do is thought out. Everything you do is a series of different reasons as to why you do it. Some of it might be experience. Some of it might be ideas. Some of it might be, oh, I'm just going to jam over this, see what happens, and the best ideas I'll keep. You never know.
0: Yes. The last bit I need to ask about this is the bridge that when you stop, it has this wind sounds, a harpsichord solo with wolf noises. Like, was this elicited kind of by the lyrics were before this? And so this elicited, Okay, we got to have things cut loose somehow. Or can you say a little about that decision making?
1: It's uh, evocative and it's evocative of the lyric. It sounds to me like 18th century bohemian castles, black and white stormy nights. And there you have this interesting contrast between the Texas-Mexican border and the 18th, 19th century, mysterious, dark, cold nights and the bohemian winter. That's what's great about the song. It manages to evoke different scenarios at the same time.
0: Well, and that makes sense more of the end where you've got the violin soloing and the trumpet answering that. So two worlds come together. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, once I'd gotten into my head like, okay, this is there's trumpet in this, then when I was listening to the beginning, I thought I was still hearing trumpet. But no, it was yeah, it was just heavily affected violin that sort of is made to sonically resemble the trumpet a little but you know, but it's different enough so they can pass back and forth later in the song.
1: That wasn't on purpose. To us, we always thought it sounded like violin. And it's funny you should say that because people have said People haven't sort of realized that it is violin at first. It's just the pickup straight into the desk. Yes, because it's being played from directly from pickup straight into the desk instead of being mic'd up as an acoustic instrument. So it has a certain sound about it. But then when you analyze it and you sort of really listen closely, you can actually hear that it's, you know, an instrument that is bowed and not blown.
0: It's time to pay the bills and hock some sponsored products. The mission of Mac Weldon is simple, to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed and shopping for them is easy and convenient. The things that are essential for you to wear should be easy to buy. They designed their own premium fabric so that Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. And even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. I just received a package this week from Mack Weldon that included a woven boxer, a Pima crewneck t-shirt, a warm-knit pajama pant, and the 18-hour jersey boxer brief. I think my favorite of those was the woven boxer. I got mine in crimson origami. There are many patterns and colors. All comfortable, all great for layering, for lying around the house, working out, etc. The website's very intuitively laid out. They are very specific regarding what the sizes mean in terms of whose bodies they will fit. And as I have learned, the return policy is generous and super convenient. In fact, if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they'll still refund you, no questions asked. So whether you're stocking up for yourself or buying... Gifts for your male friends and relatives. Actually, there was a duffel bag I got for my wife that she was very excited about. Head to MacWeldon.com and enter promo code EXAMINED for 20% off your first order. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code EXAMINED. This episode is also sponsored by Masterclass. With over 65 wide-ranging class offerings in music, in writing, film, fashion, science, business... Sports, cooking, and more, all masters of their craft. Man, just the writing category alone blows me away with Margaret Atwood, Neil Gaiman, David Mamet, David Sedaris, Joyce Carol Oates, Judy Bloom, and more. This week, I took a look at Timbaland teaches production and beat making, a style of music that I don't make, but this was super, super fun. And I really might actually try making some music using just looping. I love his starting point where you make a beat with your mouth. That's the first step. And he explains, and the accompanying course material will remind you all the technology that's involved, all the different types of effect. So this is like the sixth music class I've looked into, and there's still a lot left. On all access paths to these classes... And all the other 65 classes would make a great gift for someone in your life. Because I guarantee anyone you'd be thinking of getting this for, there is at least one, if not many, names among the instructors that they're just going to be super excited about, whether it's Bob Woodward teaching investigative journalism, or Jane Goodall teaching conservation, or Gordon Ramsay teaching cooking. There's something for everybody. For a limited time, when you buy one annual Masterclass All Access Pass for yourself, you'll get another one to gift for free. Go to masterclass.com slash examined to get started with this limited time offer. Buy one all-access pass and get one free-to-gift at masterclass.com slash examined. Let's get back to the interview. Well, let's get the second song out there. So Dancing with Death, this is from the same sessions, but it's actually going to be on the After Death EP. Do you want to introduce that project a little bit and why you're doing it uh, before you hear the song?
1: Well, the After Death EP is we decided to try and uh, recover somewhat from the pledge music bankruptcy. We raised a certain amount of money and we didn't get half of it. But we still decided to manufacture, mail out, do all the artwork, master, you know, all the stuff that it takes to make a record. So by the time we'd actually sent it all out to everybody that had pre-ordered it um, through the campaign, we sort of found ourselves financially a little behind the eight ball because, There was a lot of costs involved in doing that, and we didn't get the money to do it. So we did it off our own backs, the label, the musicians, everybody involved. So we decided, after Pledged Music finally decided that they were going bankrupt, which we knew was going to happen always, that we would come up with some kind of plan to try and recover some money that didn't just directly ask people who had already paid for the record to just give us money because they already had given us money. We'd, I mean, we'd given them something good and they'd given us some money to do it. We decided, well, why don't we do a GoFundMe campaign where people can donate whatever they like. But what we will do is we will try our best to give them something of high quality that's not gonna cost us anything to do so that the money that we get from that GoFundMe campaign can go into our recovery, the label and us, without incurring all the costs so we had two tracks from the afterlife sessions which we didn't put on the album not for any other reason than we sort of felt that the the style was covered like dancing with death we sort of felt like the style of that song was covered by a girl with no love so we didn't sort of feel that that needed to go onto the record we felt like we'd expressed that already the Mermaid isn't another thing altogether. It just didn't sort of fit into the concept of the 10 songs, whatever that concept is.
0: That's funny that usually it's this song had too different a style from everything else. But you're saying actually, in this case, it was the style of the album was White Album-ish. And so having something that deviated from that was the... De-
1: That's right. Well, we're not ACDC, you know, we're not trying to go da on every track and sing about women and, and cars. We're not trying to do that. So we had these two extra tracks. And then we did a session for um, a tribute album, which somebody asked me to do, and Dare and I got involved in that, and that was for the English band The Sound. And the Sound were uh, an early English band in the sort of mode of uh, Echo and the Bunny Men. Adrian Borland was the singer in that band. He tragically committed suicide, so when I was asked to do a track for a tribute album, I was kind of sure, absolutely. But then the tribute album fell through. So we would recorded this track. We had the whole thing done, finished. So we had nowhere to put that. We just had it sitting there for, a I don't know, it must have been a few years. I don't know how many it was. We had that, plus we had a tribute track, which had been asked to do for a Buffalo Springfield tribute album, which did happen. But it only really came out on that record and was sort of kind of an obscure rarity. So we thought, why don't we make a four-track EP? All the songs are already recorded and mixed, so there's no costs incurred with making these tracks. And then Olivia, who draws and paints really well, came up with the idea of a mermaid skeleton. So she painted a mermaid skeleton. Then we have a friend in Switzerland, Andy, who is a Photoshop expert. He's also a musician in a great band, actually. And he turned that picture into a fossil. So it looked like the fossil of a mermaid. So what we had was we had four tracks that we believed were quality tracks, and we decided to do proper cover art with you know, graphic design, with sleeve notes, but we didn't want to incur any of the costs, so we made the whole thing downloadable. So you could download the tracks, you could download the artwork you could make your own cd you could even download a poster of the cover if you wanted to and that we felt was giving the fans something of quality that they could donate towards without us having to incur the costs which would put us back in the same position as we were before and that's how it came about
0: We haven't really talked about your approach to lyrics at all. So looking at this, a lot of it is pretty straightforward, pretty scathing social critique. But then you've got a couple of elements right at the very beginning. Who put the stars here in this galaxy of dreams, right? That, that kind of sets up this different tone that this is not just Bono yelling about whatever war he was concerned with at the time. And then at the end, you make this personal that dancing with death doesn't even come in until this very end. And I can tell you something now, if I tumble, I'll always keep an open mind to get out of this mess. So you've been talking about you horrible financiers and people polluting the world, but then it connects it to you as an individual seeing this. Do you want to say a little about how your, these all tie together?
1: Well, the difference between Bono and I, apart from, uh, apart from uh, as Olivia said, <laughs> apart from our height, <laughs> and uh, apart from our bank balance, is that um, he's religious, and I'm not religious. When I wrote that song, when I wrote that lyric, I thought to myself, I just kind of like was trying to push the idea that religion, for all its positive aspects and for all its lofty claims, always closes the church doors on a winter's night when the homeless are sleeping on the steps. And I just thought that was a point worth making. And it starts with Actually, the beginning of the song is still right from the beginning. Who put the stars here in this galaxy of dreams? That is just asking the question, where do we all come from, basically, isn't it?
0: And when you're thinking about which song is going to have which lyrics... Again, it's hard not to, to think of you too, just in the connection of there is delay on the rhythm guitar and you're singing in a soaring way. Like beyond that, it's not a retread or anything like that. And there's whole other parts of this, the, this bridge that are, you know, very, and the lead guitar is definitely coming from a different place in this, uh, this, out oh, of this mess dancing with that, like where, where it reaches the climax at the end of it. I was actually thinking of the who, you know, kind of from the Tommy period. So for this, like, what was the order? Did you have lyrics first? Did you then, okay, this is I, let's do something energetic to this, or did you have a guitar riff first, or do you remember with this one?
1: Lyrics were the last thing. I mean, I've got nothing against Bono or U2. I still buy their records. I think their records recently have been a little disappointing. I mean, people have a lot of bad things to say about Bono, so I'm actually going to go the opposite way and say that I like him. I like him as a singer. I think he's a great, passionate singer. I think people should leave him alone with his opinions about saving the world. I think we should encourage people to save the world. And if you think he's a a tosser for speaking out when he's a millionaire, then fine. But I don't think there's anything wrong with his positive attitude to trying to make the world a better place. I got no problem with that at all. But from a personal point of view, as a non-religious person, I kind of feel that I'm not going to be singing about the glory of the creator. I'm more likely to sort of have a social comment on the hypocrisy of religious principles.
0: I've had a hard time with social commentary songs over the years. When I'm writing a song, it's because I have something personal to express. And unless you are personally feeling... This social problem is getting at my soul. Like, I always, not referring to this song in particular, but like, would see that as maybe I'm just too self absorbed that I feel like it's hard to feel the pain of the poor in a way that makes you yell in a way. But why? But why? Why? What's wrong?
1: What's wrong with saying, oh shit, all those poor people? I mean, sure, I'm not going to work for Médecins Sans Frontières. I'm not going to Africa to deal with the Ebola crisis but it's still relevant to be able to sort of notice and have empathy and see that you know it might be worth illustrating some of the uh, hypocrisies of government or institutions generally whether it be religious or uh, i mean you know there's this guy called trump i mean i'm surprised where are the artists that are actually writing about the disgrace of trump
0: I'm sure we could come up with a, a few Google searches. We could probably come up with a top 10 list of, uh, people writing that, but that does seem like, again, if you are crying out against something with your very soul, you're sort of letting it in, internalizing it. I don't want to do that with Trump, like specifically, <laughs> you know, I would rather in that case focus on kids in cages and sing about their plight rather than my vitriol. It's a, <laughs> but <laughs> one is caused by
1: the other. You can't help but aim at the cause rather than the the end result. It's like we all, as writers, observe the universe and describe it as we see fit. And, you know, whether you're uh, Bono or um, Morrissey, Morrissey's another one who's pretty good at, although there's some serious issues with him and uh, his racism at the moment, but um, he's pretty good at um, describing social issues, always has been. And some of the great lyrics of the modern era about these things have been written by Morrissey, I believe.
0: So what I liked about this song in this respect is that in that last verse, you connect that to kind of explain what state of mind you're in, that you're singing about these public things by making it personal. Do you want to say, is there any literal meaning this, uh, that I'll be dancing with death? Like sort of what does this meaning connection to the rest of it?
1: It means that when I go to meet my alleged maker, Sure. I'm not going to die in fear of what may happen after my death. If I have to dance with death itself and not be sent to a cloud to play a harp, then I'm just going to have to face up to that. For example, I don't believe that people who have spent their whole lives believing in God get to go to heaven. And I don't believe that people who spent their whole lives not believing in God don't get to go to heaven. That's just ridiculous. That's just a ridiculous idea. Anybody qualifies as a human for anything in the, uh, to use the name of an album title, in the afterlife. What you do on earth, the circumstances, whether we just die and go boomf or whether we go and sit on a cloud, uh, it, it's irrelevant to how you lived your life, I believe. Because some people are have mental issues, some people have had terrible injustice is done to them. Some people have been lucky. Some people have been selfish. Some people have been kind and given everything and been hit by a car and just, it's not fair. So I I can't believe that at the end of everything that uh, somebody's going to then judge you. That seems really, really ridiculous to me.
0: Let's look a little more at the music of this one, just a couple spots. This main dual lead guitar thing that this is part of how you grow the in the chorus so you that you start out with in one ear and then it gets doubled by or you know harmonized by another one are these all tap lines are no i don't tap okay all right i didn't think so but it sure sounds fluid in the way that you know this could be Eddie Van Halen doing a little
1: you know i've got my own little way of playing the guitar so it, it comes across in in various ways how did I play that? You're asking me how I played that
0: guitar. It's something that struck me as particularly unexpected, you know, that it almost sounds like a, uh, you know, portamento synth kind of, you know, one of those smeary. As a guitarist that's been playing
1: guitar for a long time, you're always exploring. I mean, I'm a self-taught guitar player. I'm a guitarist who um, never did anything other than play by ear. I don't know much about theory or scales or any of that kind of stuff. I just know what I know. I could be messing about with the guitar. And that's why I'm always talking about anything can happen. Well, I do these online. They're called um, songwriting and guitar guidance sessions. And I have a, a whole stack of what I call sessioneers who come to me to help them evolve into better singers, better songwriters, better guitar players. I don't teach them anything that a guitar teacher teaches them. I don't teach cover versions. I don't teach scales. I don't I don't make them practice Van Halen riffs or Deep Purple riffs. I talk about the other things that happen in music, like feel, like dynamics, like the magic of chord changes when suddenly a chord happens and you go, <gasps> wow, what a great moment that is in the song. I talk to them about singing in tune. I talk to them about scanning their words. I talk to them about the accuracy of their guitar playing. I try and help people evolve their songwriting because not that I'm trying to teach them things for them to go away from me to then be better. I'm actually trying to get them to come to me so that we can do a project. So I'm trying to tap into the grassroots of unknown in inverted commas, and I always sounds, always think it kind of, sounds quite insulting, but sort of grassroots amateurs who have great ideas, and there's a lot of people out there who have great ideas with no opportunities to express them or to have anybody help them through, like perhaps say an artist came along to a producer on his first record he'd written a few songs and the producer comes along and he helps them sort of turn those songs into a realize those songs perhaps like you know John Cale did with Paddy Smith on horses or Todd Rundgren did the New York Dolls like people who have experience recognizing the talent in somebody else then helping them evolve into something cool without a record company involved and of course, they have to pay me for my time to get involved with them and help them through. This is just an idea that I had, which is which is turning out really well. And One of my sessioneers has now got to the point where we started working on making a record with him. But it didn't start like that with him. He started off as a guy who needed a lot of help.
0: Well, this certainly is in line with just how many projects you're involved in these days. Has that been kind of... Something that's grown slowly over time, it seems like. Would you have thought when you were doing the church and like, okay, now and I have extra songs, I'll put out a solo album, that you would 20, 30 years later be branching in what you've got, like four different projects that have albums within the year or two? Well, it's more than that. Somebody asked me about that today. I think it's
1: eight. Because I've just finished working on the the second Moat album, which is a collaboration with my Swedish friend, Nicole, who plays with a quite well-known Swedish band in Scandinavia called The Weeping Willows. So that's one. And then we have the Nocturum project, and then we have Olivia and I, who play and tour together as a duo. Me playing 12-string guitar, her playing violin. Then we have, we have just releasing an album November the 8th, which is an instrumental album with a band called Atlantean Flood. That's coming out November the 8th. That's made. Then I'm a member of Swedish progressive rock band Anekdoten, which I'm going in 10 days to work with them and do a show in Norway.
0: You're a full member. You're not just guesting
1: occasionally. I've been with them for five years now. They've been together 25 years, but I've been with them for, and I'm involved in all things to do with Anecdotun, yeah. Then I've just been asked to play with the Wild Swans, who's a band from Liverpool. Paul Simpson was the original keyboard player in the Teardrop Explodes, and he's got a band called The Wild Swans, and he's made a record every few years since the early 80s. And me and Ricky uh, Miami from J- Brian Jonestown, Massacre, and Edgar Jones from, I guess he was in the Stairs, a Liverpool band, We're making a record in November in Liverpool. Plus, I've just been in the studio with um, Jerome Frouza from Tangerine Dream, working on something. There's also, I just sang backing vocals on the new Diesel Park West album. I like to collaborate, you know, I like to collaborate. I like to work with people. I also don't mind sitting around and making a solo record and writing the songs by myself on a 12-string acoustic. I like it always. A couple of years ago, I got asked by my friend Arno to go on tour with him and play bass. He's French. So I was a bass player in a French band for a while. That's great. This is all experience. you know. I produced an album in Texas for Salim Nooralla, who's a uh, solo artist down there with a band. I'd play guitar on it, and that album's going to come out sometime next year. So I've got tons of projects going on because collaboration and putting two personalities together who get along, apparently chemistry works well when people don't get along, the myth is. But actually, collaboration works really well when you do get along.
0: It can work well temporarily (laughs) when you don't get along. There could be an interesting friction there, but yes. People always sort of glamorize the friction.
1: But you can be best of mates and still come up with great music. That's what I'm saying. I just, I just like to sort of get away from the cliches of how it works. You know, oh, they hated each other, but oh, my God, the music they make so amazing. You know, I don't think it works like that. I think it just works because there's a chemistry and you're honest with each other and you can come up with good ideas together and it just
0: works. We want to bring a third song on here. You Whisper, which I know it was from the Art Attack album, solo album, 1988, so this was your second solo album, but the first one that, it seems like there was a sonic leap. Like, Was the first one more demo-ish, or or am I just making that up?
1: The sonic leap in the second album was more made by the lack of instrumentation. You can make a sonic leap on a record if you do less, because on the first album I used a lot of drum machines, and they it at home on a four-track. And I used the Sydney Morning Herald as a snare drum. So I was hitting a hitting a newspaper to get the snare drum because the primitive drum machine I had didn't have a setting where I could get a snare to hit where I wanted it to. So, you know, that was really homemade. But the second album was simply made on an 8-track in my manager at the time's office. And just the nature of the songs was much more acousticy and simple. It was just a matter of recording a 12-string acoustic doing the lead vocal and then augmenting it with other instruments at hand. Some of them are more, you know, sophisticated productions based on the facilities that we had. It was a very primitive area for drum machines at that point. There's a couple of machiney ones and there's a, quite a few acoustic ones. But the reason that it sounds like a sonic leap is because it wasn't made in my front room with a drum machine from 1973 and a newspaper as a snare drum. It was you know, it was one step ahead on the drum machine department, and a few of the songs are more acoustic, so if you're just playing an acoustic guitar and recording it well, because Dare was doing it, and he had all his experience of being a producer engineer, and me singing it, then it sounds more, I said before I don't really like the word amateur, I don't really like the word professional either, but it sounds more professional. Sonically, it sounds more acceptable, let's say, whatever that means. <laughs>
2: The trapped curving tongue. Your cage of a mouth springs open and throws out the seeds of a song. They grow and flower and hour after hour. Blessed velvet. To your look, your shapely arm and tears, your marzipan skin in a crystal stare, your chocolate box of fears, the load off my mind, the pointed beating pulse, stabbing instead my thumping head. This famousness is false, you glow and glint. I blink, you wink, ice polished silk.
0: So this is definitely one of my favorite solo tunes of yours. It's just so pure and simple and shows off that nice 12-string acoustic. And I do want to say a little about this. We're going to add some psychedelic stuff to start things off. What made this seem appropriate to embed in that?
1: Well, I don't know. We just thought it was like a musical nursery rhyme with that chord progression. And it's this great descending chord progression that just goes all the way down and never stops on the 12-string acoustic. It's one of the, I mean, when I do the sessioneer thing, it's not like I don't show people songs of mine. That is the most shown song that I ever play to people. That's the one people want to learn the most. I mean, there's a few X-band songs that they sort of want to know what the riff is and how to play it. But that is the most popular one. And it's kind of like got a bit of a flowery lyric and a sort of an, a nice childlike mood, some kind of, english nursery rhyme quality to it
0: it does it also has at least some of the individual words and phrases are kind of a little creepy that <laughs> the, the crapped curving tongue the cage of a mouth springs open and throws out the seeds of a song oh no it's nice but it's it's still got this lizard and your marzipan skin
1: don't fairy tales always have a macabre
0: <laughs> sure sure twitch in them <laughs> Yeah, Olivia mentioned that you thought maybe this one was a particularly good one to talk about the chord progression in particular. So, I mean, is there a story in terms of your coming up with this descending thing? Was there a particular kind of classical bit you had in mind? Was this just something your hands wrote autonomously? Oh, the guitar is coming. Well, here we go. Well, that's fun. I've had guests that have showed me individual licks, but never that. Just like, we're so excited about the song that you just, you can't just play the beginning. You just got to play it through. (laughs) Yeah. See, you know, I've played that song a thousand times. I can play it through. (laughs) Almost the most instructive thing to me is that you do everything with a flat pick. You know, I have my how to play 12 string Roger McGuinn video and he does everything with finger picks, which is the one thing that I've never really been able to get comfortable with. We all sort of develop our own style, don't
1: we? I mean, that's the thing. That's what's fascinating about guitar players. That's what's fascinating, it's fascinating about all musicians, but you hear it a lot in guitar players. It's a very expressive instrument, a creative and expressive instrument. You hear different tones, you have to hear different approaches, you hear simple, you hear technical. You hear acoustic, you hear electric, you hear big fuzz boxes and clean sounds, and everybody sort of sees it a different way. And that's why the guitar is such an amazing instrument.
0: Well, that's such a nice basic riff and progression because, unlike, for instance, the noodly stuff that is the main part of Dancing with Death, which I'm like, I don't even, (laughs) I can't even picture what you're doing with your fingers exactly. This one is just if you like doing arpeggios, it just, okay. Change the bass note, walk it down a little bit. Like it's it's very It's clear. Yes, it's very clear and it's hard to do that in a way I was gonna say that doesn't seem derivative, because you know, anything that like is so natural and clear, you figure somebody else must have done exactly this. But when you're in the middle of it, like you don't think about that and nothing is coming to mind. So it's just it's the kind of thing that your hands love to do. (laughs) That's right. It's about uniqueness
1: again, isn't it? I, I can't help being me. I can't help my influences either, but I can't help because, you know, I have 50,000 records in, the, in my indie music archive. So I'm extremely influenced by music and other artists and bands and songs and stuff. But I perhaps because I have so many records and have so much appreciation of so many different things, I manage to sort of create a mixture of all those things in my own work. that uh, It just doesn't come out as sort of directly derivative of one particular personal thing or style, you know.
0: So this is actually a very good transition. We're just going to introduce, we're not going to talk about little chunks of it, but forget the radio from Hanging Out in Heaven 2000, which I know is just been re-released on vinyl. Yeah, on Record Store Day this year. Yeah, it came out on vinyl. Again, it's it's a well it's a more beefy arrangement, but it's such a just a pretty bright song, and the lyrics, you know, the message is very clear. There's nothing, no questions are coming to mind of, you know, what would inspire you to, you know, it's it's funny that this is such a poppy thing, you know, in terms of it's so accessible, but the theme of it is radio is (laughs) stupid, and, you know, the fact that everything on the radio has to be this, like, whereas this could be a radio single, which would have been a hilarious irony.
1: Yeah, that's right, but, you know, obviously, it wasn't a worldwide hit. Perhaps it was the lyric, or perhaps it was just wasn't a hit. I don't know. But the thing about it is that I always thought, I mean, it's changed with the internet era, of course, because you can listen to sort of uh, a lot of interesting stuff on the radio these days because there's so much out there and so many sort of tangential, I can't even say, out there at the moment. So you can listen to Northern Norwegian Arctic folk you can probably find a station that plays it. Or if you want to listen to a psychedelic salsa, you can probably find a radio station that plays it. But it didn't always used to be like that. I mean, there was a period in the 60s when radio was amazing. Radio One in England, which started in 1967, was playing a mixture. The transition between the old school and the new school of, of 60s pop was met with Radio was so kind of middle of the road. And then the move came along and the Kinks and the Beatles and Amen Corner and the Small Faces and The Herd and Pink Floyd, you know, and there needed to be an outlet for it. So when you put on Radio 1 in 1967, that's what you heard. You probably heard a little bit of Engelbert Humperdinck as well, but generally it was kind of like a station that was designed for the, sort of the, the pop audience at the time as a result of pirate radio, Radio Caroline, Radio North Sea International, and perhaps Radio Luxembourg in Europe in the 60s. So it started off radio as a great place to hear hear music. And you might say, well, sure, but they were still just pop hits of the day. That's true. But as it got into, I think the 70s radio in America was probably responsible for realizing how important radio was to make a hit because that's where people heard music But then it sort of became very corporate, didn't it? You know, and everything's gone corporate until the internet where, as I said before, where radio has now sort of branched out into playing any kind of thing you want. But the corporations kind of got hold of radio, especially in the 80s. I mean, the whole payola scam of the 70s, you know, that was all about, here's, you know, I'll give you $5,000 if you just play my song on your radio show. Consequently, it was a few records that were hits because... The DJ got some money for it. But having said that, Led Zeppelin. How much was Led Zeppelin on the radio in 1970?
0: Not having been alive. I, (laughs) I couldn't tell you. I was dramatized that the way in the late 80s and things, as I was a teen figuring this stuff out, is that it was the Beatles' fault that they were so popular that they could start doing weird stuff and that would still get on the radio and that had a cascading effect that for at least four or five years after that... That's why Prague could actually be a thing and not just a fringe element. Why Yes could have been a popular band, that it was all coming out of this.
1: What's wrong with that? You know, I mean, the thing is, is if the Beatles showed that you could do more than a three minute pop song, then that's got to be good for music. That What progressive rock did was made it an exploratory thing, you know, and there's room for everybody. This is the thing that gets me about people and their opinions about what's good and what's bad. There's room for everybody. If you're into Mariah Carey or Taylor Swift or Billie Eilish or Missy Elliott, great. If you're into Yes or Joe Satriani or Van Halen, great. If you're into Ray LaMontagne or Paddy Smith or Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, great. There's room for all of you. And whatever your opinion is, there's no point having somebody who likes Mozart give you a critique of Billie Eilish. Their opinion is irrelevant. You can't have somebody who's into Paddy Smith telling you what they think of Metallica. It's just no point. It's like, if you've got an electrical
0: problem in your house, you don't call a fisherman. Well, this could obviously start us on a whole separate discussion <laughs> about the relationship between pop culture and... no. Yeah, but the thing
1: is, it's not a long conversation. It's very straightforward. You like things or you don't like things. things can be more catchy and things can be more complicated. Great. Go for whatever it is you like. All I'm saying is with Forget the Radio is, is there was a time, back to the point here, there was a time when the last place you would go to find music that you might find interesting or like, the last place you would go was the radio.
0: No, I, I definitely grew up on that. I will just tape every single thing from the library rather than rely on the radio. But there's something a little bit to mourn about the loss of a, of shared cultural touchstones that as, as horrible as it is to be beset by commercial jingles and things and have those become your subconscious out of which like, at least it was something. Whereas we're in the fragmentation. Of course this opens it up so anybody can listen to anything and that's wonderful, But it also means that there's not a common set of stuff. You know, there is something lost about that, even if it was crap. (laughs) That, you know, I guess the common set of stuff just comes in different areas, not so much music. You know, that's why maybe music is less central to the culture overall as compared to TV now or something. Young people don't want to watch television. Oh, yeah. So even
1: that is falling apart. But it's not falling apart. It's just changing. It's evolving. Sure. It's just got to be that way. You know, there was a time. Did you have a telex machine ever? this thing called a telex did you ever have a fax machine i've been around them in offices yes So no, the world moves on you know the world moves on what we should be happy about is that the guitar the guitar me as a guitar player the guitar has endured and the reason it's endured is because that also has evolved in that people's personalities are expressed very easily uh, in through the guitar and even though it's an instrument of, uh, that stands perhaps for, in some people's minds, classic, boring dinosaur rock, you can use it in so many different ways that it's such a flexible instrument. And, you know, you mix it with electronic music. The funny thing is about electronic music these days is that the generation that sort of loves electronic music, I mean, I was loving electronic music in 1975 listening to Kraftwerk. And earlier than that, you know, the early German scene was totally about Cluster and Eno and all the, all the early electronic music. It was coming out of Germany in the, in the early 70s. Tangerine Dream, who I've just worked with, with, with uh, Edgar Son Jerome. All that electronic music, that was going on in 1969, And earlier, (laughs) you know, it's not like it's a new thing. You know, you don't have to sort of tell people who play guitar that they're out of date. It's just that the people who think that electronic music is the only thing that's happening that's worthy these days are, you know, 50 years late.
0: (laughs) I'll tell you, I I took an electronic music class in college, which actually involved snipping pieces of tape and like. (laughs) using the sine wave generator, you didn't have to crank it, but it was it was very primitive.
1: <laughs> I mean there's electronic music in the 50s, you know. There's electronic music's been going a long long time. Just to think of it as being hip and cool and contemporary is cu- quite ridiculous. Not that I mind some of the electronic music that comes
0: out, I like it, you know. All right, so here's forget the radio. Man, that Marty is fun to talk to. What a super, super nice guy. Remember, you can find his various projects at martywilsonpiper.com. That's with two L's in Wilson and and a hyphen between Wilson and Piper. It was a little challenging talking to Marty in the way that I do, because as he said at the beginning, any sort of way of putting music together is possible, and it all vanishes in the mists of time. So he's definitely not one of those guitarists that I could ask him to coherently explain like, How did you come up with this riff on the guitar? It's just, I sat down and I messed around with it, and there it was. Which, of course, is how things generally work, and probably the guests of mine that articulate something more definite are making it up, but that's entertaining too. If you'd like to hear more of this podcast, please go subscribe at Apple Music, at Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and I'd really appreciate if you could go to the Nakedly Examined music page at this place and leave a rating and maybe even a nice written review. I don't have very many of those on this podcast. I think maybe people don't leave those as often as they used to now that people pretty much just use their mobile devices rather than actually going to the iTunes site on their computers. I don't know. So your feedback, your specific words will actually make a difference. And of course, I also don't have that much Listener financial support, you can always do that at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic or make a one-time donation at partiallyexaminedlife.com, Life being the parent podcast to this one that funded us through quite a few years before we actually started getting commercials on here. If you sign up at Patreon, you'll never actually have to hear me read any of those commercials because I post an ad-free version. My next episode will be with Radney Foster who I had not heard of, but he was very big in the country world in the early 90s and has just gotten better over time. He's another guy that writes songs and then stories to go with the songs. Really cool guy. Come back and check that out. I recorded three more since then. We're going to get some more British rock. We're going to get some more country, but a lady country singer. We're going to get more in the generally extended King Crimson Universe with Julie Slick, the bass player for the Adrian Ballou Power Trio, who has her own band, Echo Test, and is just freaking amazing. I also, since then, recorded another really interesting guest, and the recording crashed, so you'll never hear that interview. That was super disappointing. Maybe I'll try to get him again after the Christmas holiday. I hope your year is continuing to go well, or if it's not that music is providing a soothing balm for you, I appreciate each and every one of you listeners. Please feel free to reach out to me at mark markatnakedlyexaminedmusic.com if you have feedback, if you have suggestions about the show, if you have guests to put forward, if you are somebody who might want to be a guest. I love hearing from listeners. Most of all, keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Vincent Myers signing off. Yeah.